You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Common Descent Podcast with Silver Screen Science. Back again. This is our series where we look at the science of movies, not just nitpicking, but the broader way that the movies treat science, scientists, and our personal favorite subjects in science, animals and prehistoric things and history of life and such. Yes. Today we are discussing evolution. The movie. The movie. Well, the 2001 movie. Yeah. I'm sure that there are more than one movie called Evolution. The 2001 film Evolution was released by DreamWorks and Columbia Pictures, and it stars a bunch of names that belong in better movies than this, I oh, think. Oh yeah, like it's it's got quite the cast. <laughs> it's got David Duchovny, Orlando Jones, Sean William Scott, Julianne Moore, and Ted Levine. Yep. It's quite a cast. Will, would you like to explain the general plot? Absolutely. So, so this movie begins on a meteorite entering Earth's atmosphere and crashing down when it is discovered or, you know, examined by the local scientists, they find that it is teeming with life. Life that evolves particularly fast. And as the movie progresses, the life evolves out of control and wacky shenanigans ensue, multiple creature interactions ensue until the alien life is now a threat to all human life yes as sci-fi movies go it is a sci-fi comedy yep there will be spoilers from here on out Mm -hmm. if you haven't seen the movie there will be spoilers from here on out so that you are warned we are going to talk about like i said the science the scientists and the creatures and the evolution that is the eponymous focus of the film and finally before we get into that why we're doing this well mostly for the same reason we did tremors last week yeah because we're stuck inside most of the time a lot of our listeners are stuck inside there's a pandemic on and it has made for a great time to sit at home and watch movies we've which we have taken immense advantage of absolutely the second reason is because it was on Netflix. Yeah. And so we hosted a second Watching with the Fans movie night where we had a handful of people join us with the Netflix Party Chrome extension to watch the movie together. Which made for the most fun watching of this movie that I personally have ever had. It's a great experience. We know that not all of our listeners can access these Netflix movie nights and we apologize if yeah, you're missing out. That's a shame. But that was an influence in our decision because we knew there would be a handful of people who could join us. And the third reason is because this movie... I can't speak for Will. Yeah, but you can. (laughs) I love this movie so much. It is not a good movie. (laughs) This is is what would be categorized in a guilty pleasure. Absolutely. This is the first movie that comes to my mind when I think of guilty pleasure movies. But I have no guilt. There are, this is a movie where everyone involved in the movie did a great job at putting together this not great movie. Yes. And I love it. (laughs) But let's go ahead and move into discussing what happens in the movie. Yes. So before we get into scientists and science in the broader sense, usually when we do Jurassic Park and Godzilla, 
we start by talking about the creatures. Yeah, doing a cast list of the creatures, basically. And in this one, we are going to go ahead and, and start talking about the creatures from beginning to end of the film. Which Sequentially. also follows their quote-unquote evolution as they go from start to finish. Yeah, so we'll kind of discuss the path of evolution that the movie is displaying while we are also introducing the creatures they show. So the first creatures we see are single-celled organisms. Yes, they find cells in the goo of the meteorite. And then those cells, you know, they, they reproduce unreasonably quickly. Yep. And th- with, like... With seeming no food source. That's the thing that gets me about... <laughs> it's it, he, They see the cell split. All right, cool. Yep. And then it is multiplying into dozens and dozens of itself... But what, what are you eating? And I get what the scene was going for. So, like, the scene is he's looking at them through a microscope. He sees one split. And then it zooms out and we see that there are multi, you know, more in the goo. And each of them are splitting, which then each split, which then each split. So they are exponentially filling the screen. Which, yeah, that's what happens with cells. Like, right. when a when an embryo starts from a single cell... It doubles and it doubles and it doubles. Well, if you keep doubling, you double faster than you were. Right. And bacteria will do the same yeah. thing. So that's what they're going for in that scene. But they need a medium. Yeah. They, and they need to eat. They need fuel. They this need is, to <laughs> create mass somehow. This is happening in a microscope slide. Yep. <laughs> so the cells expand and then he goes and gets the geologist guy, mm-hmm. Orlando Jones, and... By that time, they are multicellular microscopic organisms. Yep. And Ira, uh, David Duchovny, mm-hmm. says Molder. that they went from single-celled to multi-celled. They did what took us 200 million years, he says, yes. erroneously, <laughs> in well, a day or an hour or yeah. whatever he says. But they have, quote-unquote, evolved, mm-hmm. which they're splitting very quickly. Yep. And so give rise to something multicellular. When uh, one of our viewers, one of our listeners that was on the chat asked the question, because they also, they discover that they're alien life because they have 10 base pairs compared to our four base pairs of DNA. Yes. And asked, would that increase their mutation rate, uh, allowing them to evolve faster? Which the answer is, I don't know. And also, I finally realized what bugs me about that phrase. When we talk about base pairs geneticists are using that phrase to describe the length of a sequence of DNA Mm -hmm. because DNA is double-stranded, and so each unit is a pair of bases. What the movie is trying to say is that we have four nucleobases, which are the bases of DNA, which are pairing. The adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. Yes, which David Duchovny's character says, all life on Earth has four which is kind of true. We have we have five. Yeah, there actually is a fifth. Uracil is a thing. RNA. And so what I think they're getting at is that they have ten bases. Yes. Not ten base pairs. And I can see where just from a, a, a just from a, a general public standpoint, though that is confusing. DNA has four base pairs and four nuclear bases, and those are two different things. Right. Like that. That's that's weird. That's that's a confusing well, statement. Well, four base pairs would mean a short sequence of DNA. Mm-hmm. Is that it is four paired bases yeah. and it's a little thing. 
which would have eight nucleobases in it because they are paired. But regardless, <laughs> it genetic structure is different from everything on Earth. I think eventually they say that it's nitrogen-based life instead of carbon. Yes. If I remember correctly. So our cells go from single cell to multi-cell, which a bunch of people in our chat were quick to say, well, didn't that take like two billion years mm-hmm. on Earth? Which, yes, but from the scratch. Yeah. So... Maybe these were at the stage right before. Yes, very true. In a day turning into. But the whole point is that they're evolving very quickly. And the next thing we see them doing, they go back down into the cave and they start seeing rudimentary plant-like or fungus-like structures. Yeah, yeah. and that's one of those where he says, like, look at all these, you know, simple plants or something. Right. He says they look like mushrooms. Yeah. And then calls them simple plants. And that's one of those where they are branching structures. So that could be a million, like, that. those could be corals. Right. But also <laughs> one of the things that defines plants is that they're photosynthetic yes. and they were in a cave. Yep. Although he does make reference at some point in the film to cave moss. Yeah. When they find life on the meteorite and he says, could it be cave moss? What is cave moss? Yeah, right. That's not, no, I don't think that's a thing. If I'm wrong, if somebody knows what cave moss is, let me know. Yeah, it's it, or is that just moss that grows just inside or near caves? And then crawling amongst the plant life are worms. Flatworms. Animals. Well, animal equivalents yep. in this apparently new evolutionary trajectory. Which brings up a, a through thread that uh, our chat pointed out with a really beautiful word is that they display in the movie very deterministic evolution. That evolution has a path that it is almost foretold to go upon. Right. Throughout the movie, the evolution of these alien creatures follows the general trajectory of the history of life on Earth. Yes, very parallel. Which, from a filmmaker's and sci-fi standpoint, is a clever idea. Yeah. And it makes for a cool bunch of recognizable-ish organisms. Just weird alienish versions of our prehistoric creatures. But it is, somebody uh, in our chat referenced the chain of being. Yes. In that, yeah, no, single cell to multi-cell to worms to more complex animals later. It's working up the levels of complexity, quote unquote. Yep. Which calls back to a question that scientists have sort of tackled. And, and I think it was made famous by Stephen Jay Gould, who wrote it. Uh, as the question of, if you could roll back the clock on evolution and let it go again, would you always get the mm-hmm. same thing? Which that, that determinism in, right, does it go worms to fish to amphibians to reptiles or whatever? Is that just the way that evolution happens? And this movie's answer seems to be yes. Yeah, basically. So we've got these worms crawling around on the floor of this cave. This is also where they reveal that the creatures do not breathe oxygen. Yeah, they need their own atmosphere. And there is this, like, misty fog that I guess the implication is that they are creating this atmosphere. Presumably the plant-like things are exhaling something and then the worms are breathing it. Which makes sense, though they never state that. No, which is a cool idea. Yep. But no, they don't really lay it out. It it must be making its own atmosphere, but they pick... almost suggesting the meteorites doing it. Yeah, and it's <laughs> they pick up the worm thing and it dies in the oxygen. 
The worms, by the way, are doing my favorite monsterification trait in that they're making tons of noise. Yep. Squealy, squeaky yep. noises. But I do appreciate that they the first animals they gave us were worm-like creatures. Yeah. Because, yeah, that's following Earth's trajectory. Yep, yep, yep. And then we start getting into a weird trend of the movie, which is that it's slowly revealed the worms are getting out of the cavern. Right, they're spreading into, like, the local home Yeah, they're getting through cracks in the ground to basements and closets and back areas. Presumably carrying that atmosphere with them. Yeah, we're leaking out. And then they're dying as they leave those cracks and crevices. But every now and then, one of them is then hyper-evolving into a creature in that location i guess or a cluster of we don't see it we see that yeah we don't creatures start showing up but they're always singular for the most part and they are preceded they are uh indicated by the presence of little worm bodies yeah and they crawled into an area and then more evolution happened and so we find this kind of fish looking thing yeah in a water cooler. Yep. It's Well, it's in the filtration thing of a pool. That's right. That's what it is. It's the filtration uh, system. Which was always weird to me because it seems to suggest that it's doing fine in there. Yeah. Which, what about a chlorinated public pool? Is that, is that what your atmosphere is like? What is, I don't know. So it suggests that we have aquatic animals. Yep. Something swimming. And then the, the next time they go back to the cave... The cave has gone full Carboniferous. Yeah, giant insectoid things. A forest of weird-looking plant things. Yeah, yeah, there's bug-like stuff everywhere. Big centipede-ish stuff. And it's actually, they're really cool. Yeah, no, the designs in the movie are actually pretty awesome, pretty creative. There's a few times where it is, we just took this thing and made it weird. Yeah. But a few of the things in here are like, no, that's actually really interesting. I'd love to see the design, like the the concept art for all the creatures that make a showing in that scene. So they're walking through this pseudo-carboniferous rainforest, lots of arthropods. Yeah. Like spider-like and insect-like things. Exoskeletoned. Exoskeletoned. There are flying insect things. Yep. So this... This group of organisms has developed flight. With four wings, like an insect. Like it very, very (laughs) much like Earth evolution. Or at least one of them. I think there's another one that just had two wings. Like a dipteran insect. (laughs) So they they evolved four-wingedness and then branched off into diptera, (laughs) where you have two wings. And there's at least a couple moments of, like, a big face or a big claw coming down from a crevice. That suggests that there are even larger... Well, yeah, we see one time where a big Venus flytrap tree thing eats a creature. And then there's another one where this uh, big frog-like creature with these two big powerful clawed legs and then little arms and uh, uh, comes in and eats one of the arthropod things. So, like, there's a couple of larger predators. Yeah, and it's very Earth-like. Yep. Larger creatures with the plants and such. Around this time, we also get the golf course scene. Yes. Where you have a creature, a a tetrapod. A tetrapod, a very early, you know, large amphibian slash croc-like 
tetrapod that jumps out of the water, ambushes from the shoreline. Yep, like a croc. And then eats a person by dragging them back into the water. And it gallops. It does, it gallops. It does this jumpy run at him and then drags him back into the water. Very archosaur in its design. Which is pretty cool. Yes. No, that's a, that's my favorite creature. That's a cool down. sequence. Because, it, it, again, it's paralleling that evolutionary trajectory mm-hmm. on Earth where it is suspected that early tetrapods may have started as shoreline dwellers. Yep. Maybe even hunting from there like a croc might. Absolutely. And then we get one really weird out of left field creature. Oh, that's right. The dog thing. Yeah, the weird seal, fleshy, flubbery, gray dog thing. It looks like if you combined a seal with E.T. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. that's pretty good. And it's in this person's house, surrounded by worms. Yep. Presumably Once again, it's its predecessors. Worms crawled into a place and then gave rise to a weird dog. All this is happening over the course of, of a number of days. Yes. So like it's by this point, it's been a few weeks or at least two weeks. Since I think it's two weeks, they say somewhere in there. They say two weeks since the military shows up and then who knows how many days after that. Right. So the, the idea is that we are rapidly progressing through Earth-like evolutionary yeah, This stages. all is within a month. So this is a four-legged creature, another yeah. tetrapod, that has, like the tetrapod at the, the golf course thing, it has a head. Yep. It has a body. It has four legs. It is very, it's very much like Earth land vertebrates. Yes. And then it has a weird bird face mouth on an extendable arm in its neck that latches that lunges out to bite at things when its outer head flips backward. Right. It's, it's real weird. Kind of a graboid thing. Yeah. And kind of the xenomorph thing where it has like a it's not it's kind of a tongue. Well it's a, that's the thing of like, is it a tongue? Is that the actual face and the other face isn't? Right. Is a false face are they both faces? Like, is it one creature? Is it two creatures? So it has this tendril thing with a chompy. Now, if it's two creatures, then they've evolved symbiosis. Yes. (laughs) I don't know what it is with monster films and this notion of having an extra mouth hidden within your mouth. I mean, I think it's just a way to make something uh, very other. Which, and it's it's an interesting thing because it's one of, it's a consistent thing we see in monster films that doesn't really exist except in more eels except in more eels <laughs> which i mean once again how else do you make something feel like another you make it feel like a more eel feel like a more eel and no one wants to associate <laughs> with it <laughs> so that's how it's an odd creature but again you can see where the inspiration is from earth organisms that uh that one it, it feels like I don't outside know I, of the tongue thing like that one i feel like was just I've got a cool idea for a creature. I don't know that that one's following any of the tra- trajectories. That one feels to me like Moscops and some of those Permian animals that had the big bulky bodies on the pillar-like legs. Which, it's like if a if a cartoonist drew one of those. They have a broader name and I can't yeah. think of it right now. If a cartoonist made like... It's like if someone turned that permian creature into a pokemon Mm -hmm. and then they featured that pokemon in detective pikachu yeah the movie that's what it would have ended up looking like i don't know that that was the inspiration i agree that's what it would have ended up looking like because i would have asked for my money back from that (laughs) artist because that would be a terrible representation 
<laughs> I don't, uh, I'm not sold. I'm I think not, that was, I don't know if that was the inspiration for it. I doubt it. But I, there's, but it's an yeah, early no, I, You're not selling me. I'm I, sorry. <laughs> and it's, it's got this sort of blubbery texture to it. And then we achieve the movie's version of reptiles. Yeah, of the Mesozoic big dominant reptiles in the form of dragons. Just straight up dragons. Yep. Cool looking dragons. Yeah, no, they're well designed. So they come across this field of dead dragons. So these are like human sized Mm -hmm. dragon creatures. They apparently are all coming up to the surface and then dying. Yep. Just constantly trying to breathe our air for some reason. They have wings in addition to their legs. Yep. So they have gone hexapodal, which means that either they evolved from those early amphibian-like things and gained an extra pair of legs, which for a lineage of organisms that are evolving this many novel traits this quickly... Yeah, that not out of the question of the universe. Yeah, <laughs> that this movie has created. Yes, or they evolve from those bugs. Yep, and they are insect reptiles. <laughs> and then one barfs up an egg. Yep, which hatches immediately into an equivalently sized dragon. Yep, which can breathe oxygen. Yes, the first oxygen tolerant of these organisms. So it it comes out of the egg, takes a deep breath. David Duchovny says. They've evolved oxygen tolerance, and now it's just a dragon flying yeah. around. And now it's just terrorizing the town. And it's it's pretty cool. It, no, that's it's tons of fun. I like the dragon creatures. Yes. Yeah. They're pretty neat. It's a really cool creature. It's very monstery, as everything in this movie is, in that it's it's very screechy. Yeah. And it's very targeted. Toward, like, it grabs a lady. After yes. knocking on the door, yeah, to get to get her out, it's I guess. a monster through and through. It's, it's also a monster, very reptile, very reptilian. It has um. There was a brief moment where we got to see its mouth, mm-hmm. and the teeth looked like they were ziphodont teeth. Yeah, like a Komodo dragon, or like an you know, archosaurs yep. have often dinosaurs. The theropods had these. They're sort of compressed blade shaped teeth, that laterally compressed serrated teeth. So we've gone from. The Precambrian to the Devonian question mark to the Carboniferous kind of. And now I guess we're in the Mesozoic. Yes. We have something dinosaurian. It also has good. Uh, uh, it also has an affinity for music. Oh, yeah. It has very good hearing. Like... Excellent hearing. <laughs> it's able to hear Wayne. <laughs> Embarrassing Harry. Embarrassing Harry. And then I think the last. Yeah, the creature, last creature we standalone have. creature we see is is heralded by I think it's Ira David Duchovny's character who says yes. they've evolved into primates. Yep, hairy blo- the hairy no nose chimps. Yes, and it's this fuzzy bluish white eyed gorilla creature. Yeah, and like it's got alien features in that it's only got like four fingers and like two of them are very long. And it's got very extended forearms, and its skull is misshapen, and its teeth are all long and even in weird ways. But yeah, it's just a big blue gorilla. And they go full-on, like with a lot of them, they go full-on primate. Yep. In that it is, I think it, does it have a tool? Yeah, no, it comes over with like a big club of rock or bone, and and it's smashing the cameras one by one. Yep. They 
it is suggested send the elevator up as a distraction. Yes. To then ambush everyone up top. Highly intelligent in the way that movie monsters tend to be. Uh, One of the people in the chat said Shockma, (laughs) which was an excellent reference. And the primate terrorizes people and then it's pretty much done. But it's very primate-like. Yeah. And it's an ape. Yes. It has no tail. It's standing on four feet, but it doesn't look... It's standing on its back feet, rather, but it doesn't look super stable on its back feet. Yeah, it's still using its front arms to walk around and to maneuver. And I like that he says they've evolved primates as though primate is a... Like, primates is a clade. Yeah. That is an order of mammals. You are a primate if you fit within this group. Yes. This movie seems to be following this trend of we're not just following the same trajectory as earth evolution but like those worms are worms yep and that reptilian thing is a reptile he calls the um the croc thing an amphibian yes he does you're using earth terms Mm -hmm. to refer to these creatures yes and it also suggests that like we see the apes at the end of the movie because that is they have finally reached the top Right. It's that great chain of being. Yes, it is. You worked your way up towards primates. Once again, very deterministic. That yes, like there is an end point. This is the obvious conclusion of evolution. Yes. Which is that very outdated concept yeah. of that there are certain things that are more evolved. That an, a primate is somehow more of an evolutionary achievement than the worms or the dragon thing. The other thing... It's kind of stepping out a little bit that to me is weird about the way they display the evolution of these creatures is that multiple times we see that they are preceded by those worms. Like the flatworms persist and when they come back and find the apes, we're still in that carboniferous forest. Right. So like it's not all evolving at the same rate and the ones that are preceded by those worms to me suggests that though that is a completely isolated evolutionary line. Yeah, they never show a connection amphibian to reptile yeah. to primate. Or I guess worm to amphibian to different amphibian to pri- to primate. Yes. Or through that fish thing. Yeah, like so the dragons, the hexapod dragons, could have evolved from one of those other organisms that had six or they might have just also evolved from the worms completely separately. Yeah. Because the movie seems to suggest that that can happen. So it's weird because as we go through the movie, we see progressively more recent similar organisms. But we don't see that they're actually evolving from one another. Right. They're just evolving forms that remind us of more recent organisms. Yes. Which is interesting because it brings up that question of if we found alien life, mm-hmm. right, the way that we classify life is not just based on shared characteristics, but on shared ancestry. Yes. If we found alien life that had originated elsewhere, mm-hmm. right, wholly unique origin of cells on Mars that then gave rise to other things, that's a whole other clade. Yes. So even if they evolve reptilian things, that those aren't reptiles. No, those are Mars tiles. They are convergent with reptiles, but they are their own origin, their own thing. 
this film blends the the terminology to get across the point that they're trying to mirror Earth evolution. Exactly. But it does make me kind of think, what does their tree of life look like? Yeah. Is it that the worms have given a rise to a bunch of different branches? Or are they following a more Earth-like evolutionary trajectory just off screen? Mm-hmm. It's a pretty... Co- Overall, it's pretty cool. I like the creatures. I like oh, the yes. suggestion that it's this super rapid evolution. The And the creature designs are interesting and cool. E- even when it's just a dragon, it's still cool looking. So like, no, they do a good job with the creature design. They are at least attempting to explain the evolution of these creatures and the logic behind them. Why we're seeing these different forms. But uh, it definitely conflates a number of things and suggests various options of what's going on. Yes. The other thing about the creatures is that they are, though they are based on Earth things, they are all monsters. Yes. Extremely monsterified. They're all noisy. They're all targeting people. Like even the bug thing that goes into Harry's suit, like lands on him. Cuts a precision slice through his suit and then crawls on in. Like, they're all just out to get people. They're all a nuisance or a problem from the get-go. Yes. And then at the end... Yup. It is revealed... Spoilers. We gave you the spoiler warning. Mm -hmm. That fire accelerates the evolution process... For reasons. And causes them to expand... remarkably quickly yeah it just accelerates their metabolism to ridiculous degrees and they create these kind what looks like cancerous growths yeah just which are then root-like fleshy proboscises and then at the end they decide while the 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 team the scooby and the gang are figuring (laughs) out that the fire does that the military people are employing the classic sci-fi solution which is to bomb the thing. Yep, napalm it. Lots and lots of napalm, which causes the cave of organisms to expand into an enormous fleshy mass. Big starfish thing. Big starfish with pseudopods. Yeah, big amoeba. around. And the thing that's so weird about all of that is they never explain how fire, like why fire no. triggers fleshy organisms to... That's like saying that if you put a match up to one of the individual organisms, their arm would suddenly grow this giant growth. Right. Because that spot of flesh went, fire, I love fire. Which makes no biological sense. No. They suggest that that's how everything got kicked off. That as it entered the the atmosphere, the heat, the burning up in the atmosphere, kick-started the life. Right. And got it going. But... The other part that's so weird to me is not only does the napalm create this big organism, but it fuses all, like we see moments of it combining multiple individual organisms into this giant mass. Yeah. That it just assimilates them gray goo style, which is, I don't, I don't understand. (laughs) That's a very strange. And then what you're left with is this big, uh, aircraft carrier sized amoeba thing Mm -hmm. which is still a monster yep it makes whale noises (laughs) as it crushes houses and soldiers and there's the implication they say something and i forget what the line is that that 
is the end point. Well, yeah, they say sometimes the simplest organism is the most successful. Suggesting that in their trajectory, their great chain of being, the final stage, the, the best stage, is just a big blobby mass of cells. Yeah, that it, this is the ultimate organism in that it's the simplest and they even say in line that the fire forced an evolutionary response. Yes, they do. And that this is the evolutionary response to that fire. Which is the thing that I want to discuss as we sort of transition into our discussing the science of the movie mm-hmm. section. Is this question of how do you get organisms evolving this quickly? Yes. Doing what Earth took billions of years to do in weeks. Especially, now, of course, the, the short answer is you don't. No, that doesn't happen. But it's especially a good question to ask because, as people in the chat also noted, the organisms in this movie do not reproduce sexually. They aren't mating. Right. They I was are to point that out. splitting. They yeah, are. So they're all asexually reproducing. Yeah. The yeah. the worms split. Even the big thing at the end is splitting. Yeah. And the dragon puked up a, an egg. Yeah. Which could have been the production of. Yeah, we don't know. We don't see them sexually But the movie makes a point to say, nope, these organisms don't do that. Yeah, David Duchovny says, no time for sex. Yes. Which I appreciate as a nod to that is the quicker way. Yes. If you want to do evolution, you're taking out the struggle for Well, it's the quicker way if you want to do reproduction. Yes. It's not the quicker way if you want to do effective evolution because mating rearranges your chromosomes which has been suggested as one of the drivers of the diversification of sexually reproducing animals yes that you're getting more genetic variation so these creatures must have a phenomenal mutation rate yes which would mean they'd also probably be extremely prone to like cancer and genetic diseases and deformities and birth defects right right well they show that one of the dragons is born oxygen tolerant yeah it, its parent died, but it was born with the ability to tolerate oxygen. I do appreciate that it, there's a whole field of failed yeah, versions. They've been doing that for a while. That, like, over the course of the movie, it's not just that you evolved the thing and now you can survive. No, no, there was a survival of the fittest going on mm-hmm. kind of thing. You have dead worms everywhere, dead dragons everywhere, until the one persists. Yeah. Which is another one of those very sort of tropey depictions of evolution. And it's something that uh, you'll hear people say a lot where they'll say, you know, imagine what it was like to be the first fish to walk on land. Yeah. Or, I like, you know, the idea that a mutant paved the way for... And it it's this image that a single individual... Yes. ...made the evolutionary transition and then gave rise to future generations. And that seems to be what this movie is going with. When you had all these dragons, one mutant dragon breathed oxygen, and then, were it not stopped by the protagonists, would have gone on to do more evolving. And not just that, but that that was the goal. That all of those dead dragons in the field were trying, he says, they're trying to breathe our atmosphere. Yes. That they were, they've been trying to get out of this darn cave and have been trying to breathe our atmosphere until finally that one mutant was able to, is like saying that fish have been trying to get out of the water right. until finally Tiktaalik and its cousins made it out. Right, Tony yep. made it out of the water on Tony Tiktaalik 
suddenly realized he could do push-ups and pulled himself out of the water. Which, of course, evolutionarily is not how it works. No, neither of those things is how it works. It's, you have a population and new traits arise, and if they're beneficial, you can kind of start doing newer things, and then maybe use that benefit to then move into new areas and habitats. Well, in that, yes, things are mutating, and yeah, you may have a small population of mutants, but they're not mutating legs from no legs. Right. They're mutating slightly more bones in my fin than right. the last group of fish who also had bones in their fin until eventually that happens over and over and you have legs. And that's the thing that, that, that really stops real world evolution. Well, it's one of the things from being this quick. Yes. Is that evolution can only make tiny changes at a time and it can only work on tiny changes at a time because mutations are either very minor mm-hmm. or they are inconsequential or fatal yes because like a major mutation is most likely not going to persist because you don't you've thrown a wrench in the works well in the example of the dragon going from not being able to breathe oxygen rich atmosphere to being able to breathe an oxygen rich atmosphere is not a change in the lungs That's a change in your lungs, in your blood, in the proteins made to carry that oxygen throughout the body. Physiological makeover. Like everything has to adjust to that chemical. You can't just suddenly go, ah, I'm going to breathe carbon now. No, that doesn't work. This movie functions on the X-Men version of evolution. Yes. (laughs) Where a mutation is what gives you claws or wings. Yeah. A single mutation does that to you. And so it, it's going with the idea that evolution has a goal. Deterministic. You know, that it's deterministic, but also that there is a, the, the organisms are attempting to get to different environments. They're wanting to get to, I, I'm near water, so I evolved a fish. Right. You know, because I wanted to get in that water. And that it's also mutations happening each generation allowing for vastly different lifestyles it is a very tropey misunderstanding way to depict evolution i mean it's like it's the pokemon rules on (laughs) actual organisms well and it is it's a lot like uh, in in x-men it's one of the movies that one of the original x-men movies they make a line about how you know every so often evolution leaps forward yes with the implication being that the X-Men's mutations, which give them wholly novel attributes completely different from their parents, mm-hmm. are the next stage in evolution. Yes. And even calls them a new species. Yes. That you can get a new species and a new, quote, stage of evolution. That they are homo superior. In one generation, you know, between one generation to the next. Yeah. So it, it is playing on a lot of those popular misunderstandings misportrayals of evolution as a phenomenon and then there's other science in the film so we want to talk about science in general outside of the evolutionary stuff outside of the animal stuff there is uh some chemistry if you can call it that there is so there's um the chemistry scene in the film this is one of my favorite moments in the film because it's it, it's it's real dumb, but I also it makes me think a little bit. Yes, yes, exactly. At the end of the movie, the Scooby and the gang are trying to figure out how do we stop the creatures. Yeah, we, we have the creatures spreading everywhere. We need to stop them. 
Right. Because their answer is to murder everything. Yep. And so David Duchovny looks at the back of Julianne Moore's shirt where she has the periodic table and he points at carbon, which is what we're based on. Yeah, we are carbon based life. And he goes, I think it's down two and over one. Yes. To arsenic. Which is our poison. And says, well, arsenic is poisonous to us. And then he goes up, well, they're based on nitrogen. So he goes down to and over one to selenium and says, selenium must be their poison. Which the first line of that, arsenic is our poison. He says that as if it's like arsenic is anti-humans. Right. It's the one thing they can stop us yeah not carbon monoxide right not cyanide not, cyanide, yeah. <laughs> not arsenic hydrochloric acid like like the it, list of most of the periodic I was table gonna say, everything on that table yeah. is toxic to us in the right amounts <laughs> yeah, sodium without chlorine <laughs> ain't fun either but then it's this notion that like you do this little puzzle motion yeah where it's well if we go two down and one over if we move like a knight on a chessboard yes selenium and it is i i suggest the dumbest scientific moment in the movie it will it's the one that makes out of nowhere does he go wait arsenic is the key what at what point did that become pertinent to anything and it's also they make this announcement right after the fire discovery and when i was a kid i always assumed those were somehow connected right you know, that like, oh, well, now that you understand they're fire activated, you now understand how they work chemically. No, it has nothing to do with well, that. Arsenic is very famously like feng shui. It is the balance of yes. fire. So if you have a fireplace on one side of the room, you want a bunch of arsenic on the <laughs> other side. Well, it also makes the assumption that arsenic is toxic to us because we're carbon based. Yes. And now I don't know the specifics of what arsenic does. But usually when things are toxic to us, it's because they are chemically interrupting functions of our body. Yeah. So like, I think cyanide might be... Certain chemicals will replace oxygen. Yes. They'll bind where oxygen was supposed to bind or something. And so we're deprived of oxygen or something. But I don't know that arsenic is specific to carbon i can i can say that it it most surely shouldn't be because arsenic is found in the seeds of apples right and all life on earth is (laughs) carbon based and (laughs) if it was then i could maybe see you arguing that the difference between carbon to arsenic and nitrogen to selenium involves a similar increase in molecular weight and change in valence electrons. That those, that carbon and nitrogen should have a similar shift in molecular behavior as arsenic to selenium would have. But that's not why it's toxic to us. No. Because yes, the placement of things on the periodic table do affect how they behave. Like right. all the noble gases are in a line and they all don't do anything except light up when you electrocute them (laughs) well because they have a a completed outer shell of electrons yes that's why the periodic table is arranged the way it is but you don't just get to like play dr mario and shift things from place to place yeah because that would mean that there would be a limited amount of chemical reactions and that everything would happen similarly as long as you moved over the same number of steps to the left or right (laughs) so it's a real it's a real silly moment. 
which is there to set up them using head and shoulder shampoo to defeat the creatures. Because the active ingredient is selenium sulfide. Which, in turn, sets up one of my favorite jokes in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Which is their commercial uh, parody, which is very funny. There's also another moment that I had completely forgotten. So I remembered that this movie, I was like, oh, this is the one with that weird periodic table thing. I forgot about their model of the spread of the aliens. Yeah, yeah. So Julianne Moore, Dr. Reed, gets up in front of the military people and is like, we've modeled the spread of these organisms. Which, right off the bat, is how? I always assumed that they were just based off the current spread if we continue this rate. Right. And then she shows this map where the red indicating the spread of the creatures starts in there in Arizona. Yep. And it spreads across the United States. And she says within X number of days or whatever. Yeah. She keeps going like within the month, it will have taken the state. And within this amount of time, it will have taken the, the West Coast. And then within this amount of time, the entire United States. The entire United States. And then we are extinct. Yep. <laughs> it's. I almost wonder if that was put in just to be like pedantic. And... It's so very funny. Because <laughs> the map only shows the US. Yeah. And we've modeled the spread and then we are extinct. As though they're competing with humans. Like a few of them have attacked humans yes but they're not like there's no competitive tension here no that that because they've spread that they will supplant us just as a matter of fact and it 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 feels very much like that same trope of when you know you hear about aliens invading yeah that it's oh they are the superior beings and they will supplant us homo superior the mutants and x-men yep are here to replace Homo sapiens. Well, because that's how species work. Like, that's why there's only one species on Earth. Uh, yeah, because that species has supplanted all yep. of Earth. And it, it's another one of those common colloquial evolution tropes of if you have a superior life form, yeah. they will naturally and entirely take over. It's the Planet of the Apes mentality. Yep. It's the Godzilla mentality, depending on which movie you're watching. <laughs> It's, you know, and then, and then it would spread around the world and we would be left in Australia with the marsupials, you know, our last stand. And I wonder how much of that is based off the fact that, yes, there are moments in evolutionary history where a a new group either comes about, you know, is evolves from another species or suddenly reaches a new region and we see marsupials effectively wiped out minus a few from South America. Or we see, you know, ground sloths. So, like, yes, there are moments where we see things gain access to a region, and then that's pretty much it for one of the groups. Right, and you can get invasive species, things like that. And that's what I was getting at, is I wonder how much of this thought process is based off of those evolutionary events, or how much of it is based off of our many, many, many instances of experience with invasive species from introduced species that we've spread around during our time of colonialism all around the world yeah and seeing that oh wow there are no birds here anymore because of that cat i brought yes that that's just gotten in this mentality of yeah no when a new animal shows up everything else that was there is just they're dead well i think it, it it also ties into the way that 
we used to portray geologic time and still do in it's in some of our terminology yes the age of reptiles the age of mammals as though they are taking over yeah they're they're changing uh the guard. changing hands yeah. changing guard and it's it, it feels very much in line of those no they are here now yep i like the invasive species angle because that is a much more realistic approach to it yeah and that's and in truth yeah that actually is what we're dealing with here yeah an and invasive species <laughs> many invasive species yeah. an invasive tree of life yeah <laughs> an invasive phyla yes <laughs> other sciencey topics that get touched on in the film uh there's a bit of geology yes because uh harry is a geologist orlando jones's character signed up online signed up online for the usgs because that's how it works <laughs> And there's a little bit of, you know, talking about caves and talking about meteorites. He uses a rock hammer. Yep. He has a line at one point where he says, geology is not an exact science. <laughs> and then there's also the topic that the movie starts with, though it doesn't name this subject, of a concept called panspermia. Yes. You're the ast- astronomy guy. So panspermia is a concept. It's a suggestion of how early life may arrive on planets. Potentially, though it's not a popular idea anymore nowadays. Right. And there's no evidence no. that it has happened because no. we only know of one life. Exactly. But it potentially was a, su- a suggestion for how life may have originated here on Earth that either the actual individual cells or the key ingredients for life are introduced to a planet from space debris. Uh, And the more extreme version of that is that literally the alien cells fall on a planet within space rocks for some reason and then survive and propagate. Right, which seems to be what they're going with in this film. Yes, that seems to be very much of... A meteorite that has landed already has space goo full of cells. And now it it's not, I, I've heard it suggested that what you could end up with is not that life originated in an asteroid somewhere, but that if you had life originate on one planet and that planet is struck with a mm-hmm. large asteroid, it could blow infested rocks out into space. Exactly. So that somehow you have space rocks with life on it landing and seeding other worlds. Yes. The more reasonable version of it is that these meteorites and chunks of asteroid and chunks of other planet are not seeding life, but seeding ingredients for life. That, you know, Earth may not have been very rich in a certain element or a certain mineral until we got rained on enough. And now we have the ingredients for life. Right. Which that is a bit more reasonable. And there is suggestion that early Earth was indeed being highly affected by the things falling down upon it so that version of it's the more reasonable scientifically likely while the other version of what we see in the movie is not no one really suggests that anymore yeah uh they also call it a meteor yes which it's not this is a nitpick yep but a meteor is when it burns up in the atmosphere yep a meteorite lands on the planet it's it's like lava magma kind of situation yeah. where it's where it is <laughs> And, yeah, they continually call it the meteor. The other thing that gets me is that they they suggest the fire igniting it in the atmosphere, but they never suggest, like, why their fire resistance, like... 
Right, that fire fuels them instead of hurting them. Yeah, they never well, suggest Will, that. If you follow carbon to fire yes. on the periodic table. <laughs> over over to the <laughs> the old elemental. Yeah, you table. go to like old philosophical <laughs> to fire, you'll find that for us it's water. Yeah. Right? No. We need water. No, that makes sense. They're fueled by fire. It's it's very scientific. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Everything changed the day the fire fueled organisms <laughs> came. <laughs> so there is th- th- this is one of those movies where there's a lot of interesting science topics yes that are not tackled particularly well no not really at all well because it's doing the the quick back of the envelope version of like okay panspermia what could that look like cells on a meteorite moving on yes right rapid evolution okay they do that so it's it, it ends up being these very superficial depictions of a lot of these scientific concepts. Yeah. Which then brings us to our final major section of these episodes, which is talking about how the movie depicts scientists. And surprisingly enough, our cup overfloweth. Yeah, there are three, th- three of the four main characters are scientists yeah. in this movie. Kind of mostly. We have... <laughs> David Duchovny's Ira Ira Crane. Yes. Who is... Or Kane. Kane oh, it was Kane. Yeah. It was Kane. Ira Kane. Dr. Crane is a different yes. guy. Ira, I guess he was an immunologist or medical scientist yeah, bio- or something. Because uh, it's... He, they talk about how he developed a vaccine... For anthrax. For anthrax. Then there's Harry, who is a geologist, supposedly. And then there's Allison... Julianne Moore's character, mm-hmm. who works for the CDC. Yes. And these three characters are sure something. They all they all are certified scientists. <laughs> they Yes, they are all technically scientists. Well, it's interesting because they do the scientist... They're balancing... The, the movie seems to be trying to balance them being scientists... And thus doing sciencey things. Yeah, there's a, this is why they're involved. So like, Ira's looking at a magnifying uh, under the microscope. Harry's got his rock hammer. Julianne Moore, uh, uh, Allison wears a lab coat. Yep, uh, a chunk of the time, like, <laughs> they're doing sciencey things, and they say sciencey words, and they're shown to like come to conclusions scientifically. In in which case. I actually appreciate that the movie does a little bit of having each of the scientists have their own knowledge base. No, that's very true. Uh, they do make a point to kind of tie things back to what they're supposed to be doing. Like that Harry's the geologist, mm-hmm. and so he leads, when they go down to the caves, he's finding their way around the caves. Ira comes up with the chemical solution for how to defeat these creatures and when he's talking to harry he's explaining life history stuff mm-hmm. he's like well they evolved blah 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 and harry's like i do rocks i don't know what that is yep so th- they're doing a little bit of that uh, yeah the the field specialization but on the s- uh, other side of that is the fact that they also never really define their specialties and like Ira is a specialist in whatever the movie needs him to be. Yeah, biology stuff. Yeah, and we never see her do anything really CDC related. No, I was just thinking that 
Why is the CDC here? Like, this, why the CDC there makes perfect sense. Alien organisms, alien diseases, that's... Right. Yes, you would have the CDC. We quarantined the first astronauts back from the moon because we didn't know if they had moon diseases. But they don't talk about that. But they never do anything. She's just the science... She's just the non-military scientist. Yeah, she's the government with scientist. the military. Yeah. And then that's it. She never does anything... At one point, she's like... This was very irresponsible for you not to tell us. Do you know how dangerous this could have been? Which is the closest she gets to being CDC-esque of like, this could have been an outbreak. And then never mentions disease no. ever again. And that, that the three of them have this trajectory of, uh, they're balancing, okay, they are scientists, so here's some sciencey stuff. But they also need to be cool and funny. Yes. Because of the movie, which has them doing very non-sciencey things. Oh my gosh, they're... It, if we accept them as scientists, they are bad. They are scientists. awful. She's not terrible. Like Julianne Moore's character, she's mostly like she's wearing the lab coat. She's yeah. studying the creatures. Well, it's, we don't see her do much science, but we also don't see her do much bad science because of the lack of science we see her do. Right. Exactly. <laughs> she is. She's characterized as being a scientist. But uh, we are told she's a scientist, but then she also falls down a lot. So we're not supposed to take her seriously as a professional. Yep. Harry and Ira are bad scientists. And a little bit bad people. <laughs> and bad, they are very bad professors. <laughs> yes, like, they are, are terrible professors. The way we are introduced to these two characters is Ira openly mocking two of his students in front of his classroom. Yep, for the paper they wrote. For doing a bad job on a paper. Which makes you a bad professor. Yeah, that's ho that's horrible public bullying. <laughs> and Harry arranging what appears to be a romantic relationship with one of his students. Or at least a student who's wanting to arrange that. And he's not shutting it down nearly quickly enough. <laughs> right. <laughs> And well, and he's excited about it. Yeah, no, he's definitely like he's like I'm hey. not. Yeah, even if I don't do anything, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So they are bad professors, and then like they spend a, a bunch of the movie breaking into the military yeah. sites. And what's weird about it is that they are motivated in the movie by the desire to have sort of first rights first claim to the discovery yes which is not an unscientific thing that i made this discovery and i i want to be the one to publish it scientists are humans and what being human means you have a bit of an ego sometimes and there is a procedure in science of giving priority right with like the taxonomic names the first person to publish yeah. it get the name sticks doing giving due credit you know, where it's needed. Uh, and that's also f for research purposes so that I know who made this description and I can actually cite that person. Right. And there is a push, especially these days in science, to be more mindful of who made the discovery and who did the work. So it's not at all unreasonable for a group of scientists to say, hey, we started doing research, yep. preliminary research on this. And we would like to continue doing that research. But they don't really talk much about doing research and the lengths that they go to to get access to this stuff make it... It starts to fall into the trope of scientists who... who like a mad scientist kind of thing. Well, and that's... They are... 
wholly motivated by getting credit for this discovery. Right. Like we're going to break into this military complex so we can get samples, so we can continue our work, which would make it unpublishable. Yeah. In the re- Like, if you had to break into a military complex to get your samples, you're not going to publish that. Yeah, but we, as long as we're the ones who get the credit is and even further on the movie when they they get their stuff returned to them where she is like i'm leaving and i'm taking your stuff with me so that you can get your credit right when she steals from yep the cdc yep to, to benefit the the this the scooby and the gang the point of that is not so that we can continue doing proper research it's so you can get credit they don't actually care about the discovery. No, they don't really do any research or anything. And they kill all the things. Yes. They just <laughs> murder. Every- and that's the whole movie. Our scientists are motivated by the fame of discovery. Yep. And basically nothing. Like, there are moments where they're intrigued of like, oh, wow, look at what they've done. We should get a sample so that we can have a sample. Right. So that we can own part of it once again for the sake of discovery but at no point are they just like you know at no point do they have the tremors moment of this would be the biggest zoological discovery of the millennium right they don't care another thing that no one in this movie takes this as seriously as it would be taken yes no one's freaking out over the fact that we've confirmed life exists outside of earth aliens are here and they are a plague and it's answered by, like, the local militia. Like, this one little town. And I don't I don't know who Dan Aykroyd is supposed to be. He's the governor. The governor the, of Arizona. It comes down to the governor of Arizona to decide what is done about this alien infestation. That's not what would happen. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that, at, at the very least, the national level... Well, it's involved. That's partially because the movie's going the area area 51 yes. mentality, because what happens after they discover it is the military shows up and not only locks them out of the research, which is why the, they get all grumpy. They do the, the shield in the first Thor movie. Exactly. Thing. They set up a, a facility around the hammer. Yep. And then keep it secret. Because they're the military. And in this movie universe, the military is hiding things and keeping things secret. And the governor has a whole moment of, why am I only finding out about this now that it's made it out to the media? Like, you guys have been keeping this secret from me for the last couple of weeks. So our movie is leaning on a number of science scientist tropes. It's kind of built out of science tropes. It's doing the... Uh, the trope of the scientist who is scientist only in the words that they say. Yeah. It's doing the sort of cutthroat, like, science is a... a Battle of research teams. Yeah, that we're, we're fighting over stuff. Yeah. It's doing... Which, again, it's not that there's no conflict or competition in science, but they're... Not like this. It's also doing the disgraced genius yes i was gonna say it's yeah. doing the the lone genius underdog outside the the mainstream like we are this small scrappy group that is going to do the breakthrough that the government and their scientists the cdc 
won't and can't do. Well, and not just that, but Ira is a disgraced scientist who is kicked out of the military science division because of a failure on his part and yet is still hailed as the one who really has it all figured out. It's very Doc Brown from Back to the Future yeah. where he is, we see a newspaper, he's a failed nuclear physicist. Yes. <laughs> but we're supposed to see him in the movie as the actual genius who makes a working time machine. Movies love to do that of like, I'm, I failed in the rat race. But that's because they're all screwy jerks. Right. I'm, I'm outside the rules. Yeah. Now I'm here. I'm I'm a loser by their definition. But really, I'm still the smartest one around. Right. Yeah. That doesn't happen. <laughs> if we kick you out of the society, there's a really good reason. <laughs> and they're doing the science secret thing yes they keep it secret when they first discover it they're not telling anybody right even though that's how you get credit for stuff that publish means to make public yeah like if you want to get your names on it you have to tell someone had you told someone the military wouldn't have been able to hide it and this is another trope that we see not only in film but in the real world like the way that media outlets will sometimes depict science it feeds into a lot of conspiracy theories yep of this idea that science is about getting this knowledge and then hoarding it and keeping it. Yes, sitting upon it. Secret until it is discovered. Locking it up in ivory towers. So that it can be studied for mysterious reasons. Yes, for our purposes, which none of you will know. So the scientists in this movie are kind of scientific a little bit at times. Yes. But mostly really bad, tropey scientists yes like kudos to the movie for giving us three yeah that's pretty cool and you were doing a comedy right you know so these are caricatures of scientists from the get-go they're also doing the a little bit of the jack of all trades thing yeah where like the uh the guy in godzilla king of the monsters yes where it's like you are a immunologist or whatever well it's (laughs) you worked for the government making a cure or a vaccine for, I think it was anthrax, I'm pretty sure. I think it was anthrax. Is anthrax a virus? I think it's bacterial. I think it's bacterial, in which case you wouldn't make a vaccine for anthrax. But he's making a cure for anthrax. Sure. It goes wrong, so he gets kicked out, where he is now teaching biology at a university, but still has the knowledge and equipment to test the genetic information of this new life that he finds. Right. And it's like, I I don't know how we got from A to B. That You took a PhD course whilst being kicked out from the military. Right. And then on top of that, he's running around town exterminating creatures. Yes. And sneaking into military compounds like he's an action movie hero he's science james bond yes well he's it reminds me a lot of indiana jones very much so i am a professor and i do research you're not gonna see me do any of those things because i'm off on adventures i'm too busy fighting nazis so they're bad scientists in a movie with bad science built on a bunch of really cool ideas that we really enjoy (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Google, by the way, tells me that anthrax is a bacterial. 
I was pretty sure. Infection. I thought so. I feel like I had just heard something discuss that. So yeah, you don't get a vaccine for no. bacterial stuff. Vaccine is for viruses. This is one of those movies where there's ju- there's a lot to discuss. Yeah. But there's it, a lot of sciencey things crammed in there. Well, it touches on a lot of topics and it deals with a lot of concepts. Now, in Silver Screen Science, like I said, our goal is to discuss the broader science subjects, the way that science and scientists are portrayed in the films. But it is really fun to nitpick little silly yeah, things. Pull it apart just a little bit. It, it's fun. So we like to add a little section at the end of all of our Silver Screen Science episodes where we each get to have a mini rant about some stupid nonsense in the movie. Will, what is your mini rant this time? My mini rant is that Every single creature we're shown, or at least every single creature we show behaving, you know, and interacting with other stuff is seemingly predatory. Yeah, they are. They're all going after other organisms seemingly to eat them. I guess one is a parasite. Yeah, so one of them might be parasitic. Which is still sort of predatory. Yeah, that's still going after prey. And we do see plant stuff. And we see some things picking at the plant stuff. So maybe those arthropods are omnivorous and eating some plants. But we also see those same arthropody things eating a dead body later. Yeah, scavenging. So like all of them. And it and that's that stood out to me just because like, no. Especially because you make the point to be like, hey, look, simple plants. Right. And nothing's eating them. The worms are just eating each other and then eating each other until, like, it's this mentality of, like, a cannibalistic society that everything's just eating everyone. That's not how it works. You have to have producers. You have to have a bottom of the food chain, plants and plankton that are producing food by getting it from non-food places, the sun and chemicals and stuff like that. And they're just, everything has big sharp teeth and is trying to eat stuff. Because they're all monsters. Because they're all monsters. Because that's, the, the, the point is, it's a movie and they've all been monsterified. Because they're, they're, they're all carnivorous and they're all scary. Which I get. But I stand that they still could have had their monster movie and had at one point an alien bull rampaging through an area. Well, like even, have it eating a bush and they're like, oh my gosh. And then it sees them and just charges for no reason. Like you can still make it a monster. Herbivores aren't dangerous. No, they're completely fine. Ask anyone who deals with hoofstock. <laughs> well, my mini rant, I had to think about it. And I've decided <laughs> to choose the minorest of rants for this. There is a sequence partway through the movie where one of the dragons gets into a shopping mall and is flying around and attacks a lady and... Scooby and the gang have to stop it. <laughs> Scooby, Shaggy, and Scrappy-Doo. Scooby, Scrappy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and throughout that entire sequence, Ira, who is supposedly a scientist, cons- consistently and continuously calls it a bird. It's not a bird. It's not a bird. It's not anything like a bird. <laughs> and it bothers me so much that he calls it a bird. He calls it a bird. Wayne makes bird noises at yep. it. He goes, caca, caca, and tookie, tookie, <laughs> which, as Harry explains, don't work. Nope. And, like, at least Wayne is an idiot. Yes. Like, he's a dumb character. He's a doofus. He's a doofus. I re- but he, they keep, the movie does not correct anybody in calling it a bird. <laughs> it, cont- it keeps pushing this idea that it's a bird. 
And this fits into that same thing as before, where we're using Earth terms to describe the aliens, but it also fits into this broader sort of colloquial usage of bird. Yeah. It's like the 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 sort of I'm going to say old school because it is a more of a thing in the past, although it still exists today, where people will call anything in the water a fish. Yes. It's like right, but fish has a meaning. Yep. That is a word with meaning. Fish means a thing. A dolphin's not a fish because fish means a thing. And uh, this reptilian six-legged toothed dragon creature is not a bird. They even make a light meat, dark meat joke after they kill it. They do! (laughs) And it's reminiscent of the way that people will call pterosaurs birds. Yes. Because it is a large flying thing. Yeah. And the the label bird gets slapped onto it. And it bugs me. I'm not a person that yells at movie screens. (laughs) Yeah, like the people who are like, don't go in the room! There's a monster! But that makes me want to yell at the... That's the kind of thing I would yell at the movie. It's not a bird. I mean, it's a, it's a scaly bird, just like the fuzzy birds that live in caves. Stop. Yeah, they're the, the little ones, and they, like, get down on the ground, and they yeah, eat blood. They hang upside down. They well, eat bugs. Yeah. Uh, well, I... With my the favorite, big ears. My favorite birds are the ones that start out as worms. <laughs> and then they go into a little a little cocoon, and then they come out as birds. I like the birds that sting. Yeah, the, the, the bitey, stingy ones. Yeah, yeah. The ones that make uh, honey. In fact, I I came here today on a giant metal bird powered by engines. Listeners, I feel like this discussion has been suitably ridiculous for the movie that we watched to get here. How could it not be? As usual with Silver Screen Science, we will follow up this discussion with a more thoughts episode for our Patreon, which will be not scientifically inclined but more just what we think about the movie as armchair movie critics yeah you know we, we watch movies oh we've seen a i've i've spent thousands of hours i've watching got movies. shelves full down there surely i know something by now <laughs> thus we are experts <laughs> but we hope you have enjoyed this little digression this little science discussion hopefully uh this inspires some people to watch this movie which you should yes it's not great But it's so much fun. It's not great, but it so is. (laughs) And thank you again to all the people who joined us in the Netflix watch chat. We are thinking of doing more. It has not escaped our notice that the 1998 Godzilla is on Netflix right now. Speaking of guilty pleasures. So stay tuned. (laughs) Thanks, as always, to all the people listening. We hope everyone is doing all right. We hope everyone is staying safe and staying healthy following recommendations to keep ourselves and our communities safe and healthy in this time of pandemic. We will be trying to make some of the most of this situation by watching movies and recording more extra content for you. And with that, we are going to return you to your regularly scheduled programming and keep an ear out for more extra stuff coming out soon. See you till then. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.